Ugh, what fresh hell is this? Mommy! Where are my damn glasses? Alicia, it's your mother. When you get a chance, give me a call, please. Thank you. Has anybody seen my phone? Mom! Mom! Honey! Oh, I think something's burning in the kitchen. Where are my goddamn glasses? Mama! Alicia, I just hung up with producers. They loved your read. They said you owned the room. Great job, sweetheart. But they're going in another direction. Which direction? Away from you. Mom, there I Oh, great. Found my glasses. Hello, I am Alicia Coppola. I am an actress and an author of Gracefully Gone on Amazon, hard copy, and Kindle. Shameless plug. I am a wife, a mother of three, a chef, a laundress, a maid, a vacuumer of copious amounts of dog hair. But what I really am is a bootstrap bitch. I have pulled myself up on my bootstraps more times than I can count. Like most of my guests, I haven't always had it easy. Everyone has a story. Some of my guests are famous. Some are just famous in their own homes. Some are getting through or have gotten through major ordeals. And others are just trying to make it through Monday. All of their transformational journeys are inspiring, aspiring, and courageous. We who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps don't bitch. We do. Welcome to Bootstrap Bitch. My guest today is a man I met and befriended 30 years ago. Oh, it's hard to believe. Are we that old? Yes. Yes, indeed we are. He is the epitome of grace in his journey from soap opera heartthrob to heroin addict on the street to a little bit of jail time to treading the boards in the role of a career playing Frank Farmer in the stage production of the brilliant Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston film, The Bodyguard. Judson's had three wives, three kids, and has so many gifts to give this world through his story and his journey. Here's Judson Mills. Hello, Judson. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for thinking of me and having me. I appreciate <laughs> the kind words on the intro. Yes, you are one of the OG crew of the uh, of what I like to call like the Coppola clan. The That's people right. that I have collected. The Coppola Collective. Those that sprouted from the Upper West Side in, in New York. Correct. And there is a few of us. Yeah, still. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few of us. Morgan and, Morgan and yep. Chris and uh, Dylan. Yeah. Uh, yes. Terry Gatons. That's right. Terry. I don't see Terry so much. Uh, um, bless his heart. Football, our buddy, our football player. Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy. Yeah. Jimmy D. Yep. Okay. What does that say about me that I only kept up with my boyfriends? <laughs> <laughs> what you know, does that I don't say? know. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that you know a psychologist or somebody would have a field day with that. It, it works for me. It's easier. I find vaginal energy very uh, complicated. Just women and men are different. I mean, Lord knows where I would be if I didn't have the women that I do have in my life. I mean, they have gotten me through personally and professionally some of the darkest periods of my life and some of the most wonderful celebratory periods of my life. I just think that men are simpler. They're, you guys are just simple folk. Women, we internalize everything. It's like, you know, it's like walking through, a, through an old Victorian mansion. There's so many nooks and crannies and darkness and light. And, you know, we, we can sometimes be a little confusing, us gals. 
I can sort of identify with that. But I also greatly appreciate and respect vaginal energy as well as being sometimes confused and upset by it. Mm. Men are very simple. You feed them, you fuck them, and you give them the remote. Mm. That seems to be a great start, if nothing else. It's a good start. Uh, yeah, yeah. Four out of five days are going to go well with that one, I think. <laughs> That's what I think. I'm being cautious as we tiptoe around all of this, but That's okay. I, I dig it. I dig it. That's okay. I'm not sure exactly who my audience is, so I'm going to, I'm going to tread lightly. That's Listen. something I've learned as an old bull in the yard. Um, I just saw something on Netflix yesterday entitled, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I'll give you the gist of it, is things that I should have never said Things that I thought about that I should have never said or something like that. Anyway, keeping your mouth shut before it's absolutely necessary, I've found, is a great tool. <laughs> I remember, I don't know who it was, but it was an actress friend of mine who said that as an actor, it's quite uncanny how many times you can talk yourself out of a job in the room. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Wonderfully said. Yeah. That, yes. Isn't that the truth? Yes. Being able to just sit on it and keep it, you know. My intention when I go into a room is to get out as quickly as I can. That's my energy. In other words, I'm there to do the work with you. If we happen into something fun and conversational along the way, I'm here for it. And I'll be as present and as you know, much a part of that as possible. But my overall energy is, okay, I'm here. Let's do this because I got to go. I got a bunch of great stuff that I need to get to. So if you don't mind, are we good? You know, and I find that helps with that statement. I remember my first manager, she gave me a couple nuggets back when I was 19, um, which was like, what, two weeks ago? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were 19. I remember it as though it was yesterday. Yes, I know. She said, the hardest job about auditioning is getting out of the chair. Yes. Yes. Same premise. Yes. Don't stick around and for that awkward pause. <laughs> no, just <laughs> don't wait for the awkward silence. Take your get energy. Out. Get take out. Take your energy and That's get right. out. Do the good out. work and get out. That's know. right. So, and you did some great work. So we met you. when you were on As the World Turns mm -hmm. and I was on Another World. Mm -hmm. And you were married at the time. Mm, yes, that was an interesting moment. I met her yeah. in... At the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I had, by the way, the night before been out drinking and gotten in a brawl in a bar and had had my head split open in three places and had about 40 stitches all over my head and in my face. And I had come to school the next day with a bandana around my head to cover up some of the wounds and whatnot. And I was coming down the stairs and we locked eyes and that was all she wrote. She fell for the she fell for the bad boy thing right away, and I think about thirty days later we eloped and and got married. That was my first, and that lasted about three years. Yeah, we did. We had a pretty good run, quite honestly. I mean, all things considered, having you know no common sense or any real couth or, of, of any kind at that age, you know, being a young guy, we actually hung in there, you know. And when we and when we parted ways. It was very sort of graceful, and um, we sort of both agreed that despite how difficult it was to do that and how much we sort of had this emotional connection to each other, we just knew that we couldn't seem to figure it out at that point. So, so we parted ways. Well, I'd, I remember that period of my life 
Um, my father, well, we were on the soaps at the same time. You were on from 91 to roughly 93. Mm-hmm. I was on as well from April 91 till, till um, December of 93. And my father had just passed away. So mm-hmm. I always say I that, that the people that I have found when I was writing down my list of the most interesting people that I would want to talk to, it was the people that I recognized a certain pain in. That there was just this instant symbiotic feeling that I get when I look into somebody's eyes. I just go, oh, I know that. Mm. I know you. I I may not know your name yet, but we probably will be friends. Your story, but I see you. I see you in in the pain you've been through. I recognize that. That's interesting. I can identify with that. Yes. And I I know pain. Yes. Most of it's self-imposed. But um, I, I get it. Well, that's interesting because in your bio on IMDb Pro, there was this mm. great, great sentence that I thought described you very well. It said that your brash attitude and your wild personal life continued to always be your worst enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have certainly been in my way and responsible for any sort of lag or failure, if you want to call it a failure in my life and career myself, I am certainly the architect of my own demise uh, on most occasions, but I'm, I'm figuring it out. I'm little by little. I'm calling myself a late bloomer these days because I'm, you know, I'm sort of getting a hold of some things here. Finally, I'm a late bloomer as well. And I think had you bloomed earlier, you might be boring. So maybe, you know, you might be you know, peaceful. Um, I certainly feel like all of that cathartic, just uh, intense, bipolar type energy and journey has been a part of what has made the uh, texture and layers that I have uh, rich and full. You know, I, I'm not living that truth anymore but had i not lived it i don't think i'd have access to some of the things i do have access to in my work as well as in my altruistic endeavors if you will being a father or a friend or someone who's trying to help their fellow man you know being able to uh, identify and relate to suffering and to um, strife is you know really helpful so let's talk about that so you're on the soap you're a young mm-hmm. guy, you're making over six figures a year, young, beautiful wife, you divorce, you move out to LA, yeah. and I yeah. have a really, really distinct memory of sitting on, of you sitting on Chris's large overstuffed chair in the apartment on Doheny, mm. and explaining to me how you were on the streets using heroin. Mm. So how mm-hmm. does one go from the... Okay the handsome soap star <laughs> with a wife to right. an alley with a needle in your arm. Right, right. Uh, so what happened was I, I got divorced and I, and I got off the soap and I did an episode of Law and & Order. And at that time, that was really all that was being done in New York. There wasn't all the stuff popping that there is now. So it was off to LA. You know, what are you going to do? You got to, I mean, that's where the work is, right? So I, I take off and I land in LA and right away I get a few cool jobs And so I got a little money in my pocket, but I fall in with Lou Rawls Jr. and Marvin Gaye 
the third. And at the time, we're all sort of, you know, uh, drinking and partying. You know, a long story short, I, I just begin a run. In, I become enamored and enveloped in, you know, the, the life, the fast life out here that, you know, the sunshine and the girls and the, and the rental cars and the clubs and the hotel parties afterward and the mansion parties afterward. And I've got kind of a name going for me and I've got some charm going for me and I've got some money in my pocket. You know, I just fall for it hook, line and sinker pretty much. And so what happens pretty quickly because I believe um, I am predisposed to struggling with uh, addiction. There's a, a part in the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about the situation that they uh, discovered in people that struggle with drinking. And I believe that I fall into that category. I have an allergy of a sort to alcohol and it's not unmanageable completely, but it certainly is. Uh, I'm not able to uh, use alcohol without it affecting my emotional and spiritual well-being, which can then affect my outer life. But so, um, so I end up, you know, just running and gunning out here right off the bat. Uh, and, you know, as I start getting into smoking cocaine, you know, I'm doing cocaine, I'm drinking, going to clubs. Um, I meet a porn star who I fall in love with. And uh, we start doing drugs together. Just, you know, it's just a lot of that kind of less than zero requiem for a dream, you know, kind of lifestyle. And I'm perfectly suited for it because... I'm broken inside and I don't know it and I'm, I'm fixing it on a daily basis with exterior substances of one kind or another. And on top of that, I'm, I'm attracted to that lifestyle. Anyway, I'm great at it. I'm a great partier. My personality and my energy level and my, my mental illness, if you will, lends itself to that kind of environment and that fast paced kind of thing. So um, I start getting into smoking cocaine and then I randomly uh, hanging out with a guy who um, the way it started actually specifically, I'll never forget it is I had a, a bag of insulin needles that I had gotten a hold of because I was at the time using a supplement to work out that was an injectable substance. It wasn't insulin. I can't remember what it was at the time. But anyway, I was administering this other thing, but I had these needles. And somehow it came up that I had these needles, and this guy knew how to use those needles. So we had some cocaine at the time, and so he taught me how to shoot cocaine. And I was hooked right away on that experience, that rush and that kind of sexual energy and that intensity was right up my alley. So I got involved in that. And then not long after that, I stumbled across somebody who, who knew how to use heroin. And heroin is the perfect down to that up, if you will. So I you know, learned how to, how to shoot heroin. And then that whole thing pretty quickly year just made me really sort of incapable of, you know, working anymore. I just wasn't ready or available and or interested to some degree at that point because, you know, my life had just become so crazy and scattered. So, yeah, so I found myself pretty quickly suddenly out of money and with a bunch of bruises and shit all over my arms. And luckily, 
my manager at the time, um, I had the presence of mind at some point to call him and say, Hey man, you know, things have just really gotten away from me here. You know, I can't, I don't know where I'm at or what the fuck's going on. And so he came and picked me up and he took me to a place, uh, over in Glendale, the first of a few <laughs> treatment centers. And, uh, and I, and I embarked on my first sort of tour, I call it of, of recovery of sobriety and started to learn about my, my mental situation. Now I haven't, until recently, I'll jump I'll fast forward. You know, I'm a huge proponent of, of mental health. And I'm one of those people like so many right now who are like, hey, listen, I'm mentally ill and I treat it and it affords me <laughs> the life that I have. You know, be, take care of yourself. If you're, if you're depressed and you're struggling with anxiety and you're, and you're medicating yourself one way or another with things, if you're self-medicating and you're not sure why, you, you know, you can't stop or whatever, you know, get to an AA meeting if you feel like it, but we're off a lot of times in our, in our chemistry without knowing it. And so you're, you're treating, uh, you know, a substance abuse problem when what you really have is a mental illness problem. And so I finally recently got to a, a psychiatrist who diagnosed me as mildly bipolar and mildly Asperger's. Mm -hmm. I'm on the spectrum, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so in finding that out and getting some very uh, mild medicine to help with that, I have entered a whole new place of living in terms of, you know, and I've had a lot of luck. Uh, throughout the course of my life when involved in, in 12 step programs or spiritual programs, I've had a lot of luck with, you know, working the steps and, and living a certain kind of a spiritually based lifestyle. And I've really, really benefited from that and really endorsed that and really pushed that. But I have, I've never uh, entered the, the, the playing field that I'm on now having finally specifically treated and diagnosed what's going on for me. You know, and I look back at it now and I, re and I realize and recognize, you know, because I have a son who's Asperger's now too. Uh, and so I've been trying to get to know him and trying to figure out how he works and how to relate to him and have a relationship with him because he's completely different than what you're used to in another human being in terms of boundaries and social cues and the way people tick and things that usually work and don't work in a social situation or in a relationship. He's completely different. He's not wired that way. So he says and does things that offend me and hurt my feelings. And he doesn't listen to things I tell him, and he, but he does hear and, and relate to other things. So it's a whole new world. So I'm getting to know him through all this literature I'm reading and I'm going, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like me. Right. Wait a second. And so that's what inspired me ultimately to go somewhere and, and spend a couple of weeks and work with some people who are on the cutting edge of, mental health right now you know i've come to find out all, all of those feelings of discomfort and social anxieties and all of that those highs and lows and all of that impulsive behavior i had all the difficulty i have controlling my impulses and whatnot in certain kinds of situations and and social uh, environments is a part of uh, being on the spectrum is part of being at Asperger's, which I don't know if people know what Asperger's is, but it's a high functioning specific kind of autism. And, yeah. and I think now, I think now you don't even, refer, I don't even think they're calling it Asperger's anymore. I'm not sure. 
Um, but it also happened like my son is brilliant. He's so smart. A lot of people, uh, you know, Einstein was supposed to have been uh, Asperger's. Um, the movie Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, that gentleman, which is a true story or based on a true story, he wasn't had Asperger's. You know, there's nobody that I have ever met on the spectrum. However, it's a circle. You know, it's a circle. My daughter has over 166 IQ, right? Mm. You go a little bit farther to the left, and you're right there. Mm -hmm. I have never met anybody who's on the spectrum who's stupid. Right. Yeah. So, but, but, but their brain, my son's brain doesn't work or fit real well in the grooves of our learning you know, of our school systems and the way that they have designed our school systems to teach and to work. It just doesn't work. So that's kind of, and I look back at my life and go, Oh wow. Well, so that's where all that's happening. I think our parents did the best that they could, Mm -hmm. but the spectrum, yes, it existed, but nobody spoke about it. Did depression exist? Yes, but nobody spoke about it. Did anxiety exist? Yes, but nobody spoke about it. So well, not, I even knew that's what it was. Correct. I, I mean, naming it wasn't even a thing. No, it wasn't. It's not a, like you knew you were depressed and anxious, but you weren't going to talk about it. You didn't even really know. I have a very distinct memory of a couple of days after my father was diagnosed with brain cancer that I went into the kitchen and I got a knife. And I went and I sat in my room and I contemplated hurting myself because I thought perhaps the physical pain would take away from the pain that I was interesting just being devastated by mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the inside of course now we call that cutting back then we didn't call it anything so what did my parents do they sent me to a boarding school where I'm yeah. sur- where I'm up on a hill with 60 girls in a dorm and not knowing what was going on at home. So it was just like Band-Aid after Band-Aid after Band-Aid over a cut that they that they knew existed but didn't know what to call it. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was there, but I didn't know what to call it, which is what amazes me that you were able to, of course, it didn't end well, but be married so young because during that time that we were on the soap, I, I, I couldn't keep a basil plant alive. Mm-hmm. But going back to you, so you go through this period, you get yourself clean, and during that time, you meet another woman. Mm-hmm. Were you clean when you met her? So I get clean the first time, and I'm still in Los Angeles, and I'm still doing the thing, and um, pretty immediately, because of how I'm living now, uh, the universe responds to me, and I start having a bunch of what was success really quick again. So now I'm doing the major league movie. I'm doing the thing with Cuba Gooding Jr. and um, Brendan Fraser. And now I'm, uh, you know, I'm rolling along. And then I, I, I get this, uh, I get this job with Chuck Norris on uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. So I'm, I'm accelerating again in this environment and becoming successful. And, you know, that guy, ultimately I decide, you know, that it'd be a lot of fun to, to do some drinking and, and partying while this is going on, you know? Sabotage. Sure. Yeah, and I was always a person, always a person that was much more likely to get into some trouble when things are going well than as a cover or as a, you know, medication for things going badly. So you were celebrating. Um, right, right. What? How much... 
we could how much better would this be with a little booze poured on it you know what i mean like honestly though you know and i still you know my brain still wants to work that way but so i'm i'm having this success so i started to decide to do some drinking and stuff again you know things start going kind of sideways again you know and i'm working some and i'm you know drinking some and i'm so I met Julie and again, it's another one of those whirlwind things and super obsessed and super, you know, and I think three months after we met, she's pregnant with my oldest son, Dalton. And so, um, she's pretty adamant right away that she wants to, to have the child. She had uh, blessed her heart, just been in a really successful and wonderful relationship and her boyfriend at the time, shortly before we met, um, had been the victim of a random drive-by shooting and oh, yeah. was mur was murdered uh, and died right in her lap, like on the street. Blessed, oh, blessed so she was prime for you. She was broken as broken could be. So I went, that's my girl. And, um, and so she got pregnant right away with Dalton. And I'm like, well, all right. So... I guess, you know, it's about time to, I guess I should step into this. You know, I'd had several years of recovery and living right behind me now. So I had some ideas about the man I wanted to be. And I had experienced some of what life has to offer when you're really coming from a, a place of humility and, and of, uh, good vibes and, and good behavior. So I'm like, well, you know, we sh I, should, um, I should probably step into this and do this. And so we got married. And that relationship just imploded uh, after a couple of years. Actually, I don't think Walker had quite come yet. The other two were still. Oh, yeah. You yes. got married in 97. Yeah. Walker came yeah, in. It came shortly after that. Some yeah. of the other stuff was going on. I was having some success with other things. But yeah, as I remember it now, the Walker thing was another landmark sort of. And that took me to Dallas, took us to Dallas. And that was kind of at the end of a couple, I think it was two and a half years again, that magic three year, two and a half, three year mark. Um, and things were just really not going well. Again, we weren't getting along. She decided to come back to uh, Los Angeles and with Dalton. And I was in love with Dalton at that point. I was just, and he was probably two and a half. So she comes back here and that was a heartbreak and a kind of a loss that I had never been prepared for or was ready for in any way. I didn't see that coming really. And I certainly was not prepared for what that felt like to be separated from your child, your son, whom you love the way that I loved him, which is, you know, I'm assuming the way most parents love their children to one degree or another. I went into a really dark place at the end of hearing the end of Walker and into the president's man, which is the movie I did with Chuck afterward that spun into a period when I got, when, when Walker was done and, and I, and we did the movie, uh, the president's man thing, nine 11 hit right as that series was, was supposed to be a series. The, the president's man was going to be a series uh, Robert Urich was our president and God bless his soul. He passed of cancer, lost his battle with cancer and then nine 11 hit. And so I came back to Los Angeles and that put me in another tour, if you will, of scandalous and insane behavior that, that went on similar to the, the others. I mean, once, I mean, the specifics, you know, and the stories are different, you know, that was, oh, and that was when meth hit the scene too. 
Oh, okay. Meth was a big moment because that came on the scene and just wrecked everything and everybody in Hollywood for like three or four years. That was just Hollywood just dissolved at least the club scene and all those things. Cause at that point I was, I was doing the thing at the door of the garden of Eden right after Walker and all of that. Yeah. I was now the celebrity doorman, right. Which was worked wonderfully in terms of money and feeding into that. Hey, this would be a great time to have a good time again. You know, and that folded into the Michael Tardio murder and all of that thing I went through with being investigated for that. Of course I didn't kill him, <laughs> but that was the word on the street. And uh, yeah. I don't um, think I heard that word. Yeah. Yeah. This is, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an entire other episode. That's a hell of a story. That's a hell um, of a, but what we're seeing here and, and for my, my listeners, mm-hmm. the title of this podcast is bootstrap bitch. Right. Because Throughout our lives, at least the lives of the people that I find interesting, everybody's had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps once or twice or maybe Mm. 15 times Mm -hmm. in very many different ways. The fact that you have done that, you've been on your tours of, Mm -hmm. you know, debauchery uh, and bacchanalia, if you will, Mm -hmm. to me seeing you at the Pantages right on stage and i to this day do not know why i was in tears mm. when i came to see you mm-hmm. backstage but i do, I, rem- I remember you know, i was so proud mm. of you thank you and me, because i me know too <laughs> yes <laughs> because <laughs> i know the stories yeah. i know how many times you've had to pull yeah. you by your bootstraps I've seen you at your worst and I that night saw you at one of your best. Yeah. And I think that's what I want people to hear in your stories is that you can give something a go. You can go from a really high profile gig to absolute nothing. Mm-hmm. You can go from being in the streets to on the stages at the Pantages. Mm-hmm. But you got to pull your bootstraps up. You got to pull your bootstraps up and you've got to do the work. I'm, I'm learning today the things that I never had a chance to learn from 12 on. Right. In answer to my rhetorical question about why is it that I've maintained my male friendships, I think because during the formative years of my life, those 20s, um, was when I was searching for my father. Mm. And so in each one of you guy friends that I still have Mm. contact with is each part of my father. And from each one of you, I have learned. I'm taking that to the next step in learning how to gather the tools to look at my own behavior, you know, as a wife, you know, of 20 years to Anthony and a mother to three very, 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 very different children Mm -hmm. and an actress and right now we're in the pandemic. How do I make sense of it? Succeed. Succeed. And, and I have the propensity to go down the rabbit hole. I, yeah. It's very easy for me to spiral and be mm-hmm. in the position. Yeah. How can I make sure my boots are on? Yeah. Yeah. There's a few different things, you know, I've experienced out of several different points in time, but 
but still a handful, we'll call them, of significant moments where the choice was to give up and, you know, stay in jail or, or you know, perhaps OD or, you know, die, or, you know what I mean? Or to just hang on. And I don't know what it is that, in, that makes a person choose the good fight. I can't, you know, it's not like I can say, you know, I was thinking of my mom and I don't, because at that point when it's that raw and it's that, you know, when you're in jail and, and you, and you, you feel like you, that the beat down or the rape is coming and it's all just insane and you never know when you're getting out and all of the other things go away, you know, in terms of self-preservation, you know, when you're on the street or you're, and you're in that last moment of, of consciousness or unconsciousness and, you know, the, all that stuff goes away, but there has to be that moment where you decide I'm going to, I'm going to do it as opposed to I tap out. And I don't know what, I wish I knew how to give that to someone, tell someone, you know, how to do that in that moment, but they call it pulling your bootstraps up. You know, there's that moment where you have to just decide for yourself. No. It's not, my story's not going to end like this. My story isn't going to be that. I don't know what it's going to be. And right now I got no way to see anything other than this. But from that beginning is where you, you know, and, and all of my, we talked, we're talking about right before we started recording this, all of my troubles are really of my own making all the way along. You know, the, the consistent factor in all of my marriages that didn't work was me, <laughs> You know what I mean? And those are the things that you have to start being courageous enough to look at, you know, and that doesn't mean that there, there weren't, you know, parts that those, you know, women might've played in it, but the things that I can change to make something different happen later are only the, the stuff about me that, that I can see or discover or uncover, you know? And so, I spoke to, I was talking to a great therapist recently who said to me, listen, man, most of what you're struggling with as a human being comes from some kind of need or needs that weren't met in your formative years. And that can take several different kinds of, you know, stuff from your mom or stuff from your dad or not having a dad there or this and that. But there's not a whole, it's not that complex or confusing once you get into human uh, psychology. And so when you start to understand that taking a look at some things in terms of how you came up in those moments you talked about searching for your father, you know, th those are the gems. Those are the things that when you uncover them, you start being able to backtrack and find out because what we do is is we develop coping mechanisms that work in that moment that you were four years old and being abused by your cousin. You developed a, a, an attitude towards a man, men or women, depending on who you are, you know, to deal with in at the, as that four-year-old, that situation to cope with that. And what happens is that same attitude and that same coping mechanism doesn't go away until you undo it. That's but you don't, you don't know about that later down the line, that that's what's happening in your current adult relationship. For example, you know, and that was, that's been the, some of the, the work I've been doing in the last year or two 
is work I didn't know I needed to do about yeah. stuff. My husband said to me very, very smartly, I was, I was doing a movie, uh, no, I was doing a, um, a TV show in Montreal two summers ago, and I was supposed to go do a movie, but for some reason, the days didn't work. Well, you would have thought somebody shot my puppy. Mm. I, my behavior, the screaming and the crying, and my husband said, you know what your problem is? You're still 12. Mm. So that coping mechanism that I did mm -hmm. when I was 12, I'm 52 now. That right. can't fly anymore. But it worked then. It worked then. It must have worked then because you're still doing it. You know, you know. I'm still doing it. And I do it a lot. I scream right. and cry. Until I get it. I get my way. I make everybody in the sandbox miserable mm -hmm. with me. And I'm learning that. And I'm learning that I don't have the tools. Mm -hmm. And part of that and I just want to call back something that you just said. The thing that you knew that I think we all need to know inside of ourselves in the most quiet place when we're ready to tap out or we're ready to, to fight the good fight. Mm -hmm. I think that you knew you're special mm. and you have worth mm. and you have value mm -hmm. and your story is too special. The person that you are is too special to have your story end up on Skid Row right. or in jail. That's your message. Right. That's that and, me and, and that's and that message applies to everybody. That and that's my that's, point. that's the message is discovering is discovering yeah. that self worth, discovering that self, that value of self. I just read a book recently called. Love yourself like your life depends on it. Can't remember the guy's name offhand, but if you Google it or look it up, it's great. And it's another one of those sort of programs that you can plug into your day uh, that has to do with taking actions like writing in your journal 30 times, I love myself, I love myself. Or whenever you find yourself struggling with uh, some sort of an issue or an emotional situation, just jump, fall back to, I love myself, I love myself. Or when you, when you go to, before you go to bed, look in the mirror and tell yourself. The reason he just developed this method of doing the, the, the many different things, which I just touched on a few of right now, is that he came out of a horrible, horrible breakup and felt terrible and worthless and awful and realized that he, he wasn't, that he didn't love himself, that he couldn't consciously come up with that. And so he developed a way, if you struggle with self-worth or you struggle with honestly being able to tell yourself you love yourself, uh, a practical way to, to, go, to reverse engineer it, to start acting as if, and by virtue of saying those words, breaking it down to something that simple, I love myself, those three words, I love and myself, are spiritually charged and very powerful words. And to say those out loud and to write those down has a, an effect, uh, a quantitative effect on the psyche and the heart and the spirit. And it makes a huge difference. And I started doing it, and I'm going to tell you something, it, it really started other things, dominoes to fall as well, but has been a huge part of how I treat myself on a daily basis right now. Well, and it really is amazing. And I, I give that, I pass that out to whoever's listening. If, you, if you're struggling, you know, 
check that book out. It's a really neat book and a really easy program to, to, to do, you know, to work with. I think that's amazing, Judson. And I want to thank you for being so open and honest and sharing your story. What you just described in that book, the I love myself, I love myself, your message about finding that thing inside you that tells you you're special, that your story can't end there. That is the OG bootstrap bitch. There you go. So I adore you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Quite a story, right? For those of you who have any interest in reading Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It by Kamal Ravikant, it's on Amazon.com. I think if Judson recommends it, it's worth a try. Thanks for tuning in to Bootstrap Bitch.